0: Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nest Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering five conversations from episode 19. Our review of last week's ICER public comment session on their assessment of the acid and resmeteron. Plus, from the vault, conversation 36.5 from season three. Last July's wrap-up of our conversation about Intercept Pharmaceutical and their release of updated regenerate data on beta acid. This conversation focuses on the specific testimonies our panelists gave and the reasoning behind them. Mike Patel discusses why he chose to focus on the personal side of the disease by describing the case of his daughter, her challenges with weight management, the success of her bariatric surgery on her NASH, and then that she's had significant health challenges after the surgery and as a result of it. Wayne Eskridge says that he focused on the issue of NASH being a progressive disorder because he personally was a fast progressor. I asked whether Wayne loses type 2 diabetes, which he does not, because of recent work from Robert Lumba's group at UCSD about how quickly diabetic patients progress in terms of fibrosis. Tony Vigliotti explains that he chose to discuss significant fallacies in the populations and numbers chosen for the economic analysis of being a numbers guy. As the conversation winds down, we discuss the value and viability, or in both cases, lack thereof, from doing an economic model of drugs with this stated prices. In our first conversation on the ICER preliminary report, GLI Vice President of Liver Health Programs, Jeff McIntyre, said he appreciated patients having a voice, but noted that that's not the same thing as having a vote. Patient advocates' comments in this conversation make it clear exactly how wide the gap between the two is right now. Fortunately, as Veronica Miller noted during our first ICER report, episode. ISA reporting has no impact on FDA decisions, but as we discussed during this conversation, it might have an impact on payers. Progress is a long journey, so let's all keep pushing. And while you do, listen, sit back, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the discussion in our LinkedIn discussion group. So I want to I want to go to the specific testimonies that each of you gave and why you chose to approach it in the way you did and what you think the import of your testimony was. Mike, I listened to yours most recently, so I'll probably ask you to go first.
1: Mike Bottel.
2: Sure. I gave the example, although I had naffled myself and was able to clear it through those lifestyle management approaches, my daughter had NASH and took an extreme solution, which isn't for everybody. And that was the gastric bypass. And I thought and was really frustrated by the fact that the document really made light of solutions like bariatric surgery saying, oh, lifestyle management or bariatric surgery are other alternatives. And it's like, okay, it takes months and months of work to be able to even get worked up to be able to do the surgery. Then you have to go through basically a lifetime commitment to the way you eat and drink and everything. On top of that, for my daughter's situation, although she did eliminate the NASH and half her body weight, she then had to have her gallbladder removed. And then again, just last week, she had complications because of the gallbladder involvement with bile and stuff. And so it just goes on and on and on. And who knows what the future is. And I did read a lot lately, the gallbladder is involved in a lot of this. So that's where my take was. And I really wanted to share the personal side of it saying that this is not an easy journey. It's not like, well, Well, if we don't give them the medication, they can just take care of it on their own. It's just not that easy. And as we talked about earlier today as well, that was the focus of what I talked about.
0: Yeah. The thing that I found most compelling in your comment is the thing you just went back to, which is not just that your daughter, you know, had surgery, liver improved, lost half her weight. Okay. If the story ends there, that's one story. When you go on to gallbladder and ongoing complications, that's very different. Very different because it says the story never ends.
2: I don't know the ending yet. Hopefully it's good. Yeah.
0: Yeah, there you go. Okay,
2: so alphabetical
0: order. Wayne, why did you comment on Why did you choose to comment on it that way?
3: Wayne Eskridge. Uh, well, I uh, focused on their position of this was a non-progressive disease because my personal experience, I turned out to be a fast progressor myself. I went from an F2 to an F4 in five years. It became evident to me as I learned more about it that that was quite a dangerous place for me. So their minimizing of the progressive aspects of it really caught my attention. So I basically focused on trying to give some examples of this is progressive. It is a disease that, although very subtle, the, 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 our problem is that the symptoms are so subtle in the early stages. And we usually write them off as, well, that's just what getting older feels like. You know, lose your fatigue and and your sleep problems and the gastro problems that you just develop over the years. We just write write that off to being older and in many cases it's really symptomatic of progressing liver disease. So that was my focus. I wanted to complain about the biopsy, uh, about the cost that they were using. The primary focus was just to to comment about the nature of progression and they really were offended by my use of the Paul Angulo study which did a hazard ratio uh, comparison of mortality the odds ratio of mortality between diabetes and stage 1 and stage 2 and smoking. And that data says that those are more hazardous to your overall life extent than is diabetes or smoking. And They gave me a lot of pushback about that.
0: Uh, Wayne, remind me, um, at the time you were diagnosed, were you living with diabetes, type 2 diabetes as well or, or not?
3: No, I've never had diabetes. I, have a, I just have a pure NASH. I had a gallbladder out, but no other uh, organ systems involved.
0: Okay, because the, the reason I ask is because sitting stacked up on my desk of my academic papers to take a look at is something that came out of Rohit Lumba's group in San Diego recently suggesting, like really recently, suggesting that for a type 2 diabetic, one level of progression on NASH could take four years, not the seven that people have always talked about. So at that point, two to five doesn't become such a crazy fast progression for people with diabetes. Now, you're still a fast progressor, but Wayne, I've always thought of you as an overachiever.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's great. But Lumba's paper was really good. I think that's really so important information that people need to know because so many of us have uh, diabetes and that puts a different clock on things and that's important.
0: Yeah, and and by the way, I didn't notice in the ICER paper that they said the disease is not progressive except in diabetics. As you said, it's not progressive. Back at using old data or wrong data or wrong impressions. Tony.
1: Tony Viliotti. Yeah, my focus, and I guess this is, yes from my background as a numbers guy, I focus more on the economic side of the paper. And my concern was if they got the cost benefit analysis wrong, then you know what they were doing was kind of a waste. And the thing I did was I, I started looking at the citations they had for their inputs to the economic model. And the article that they based a lot of their inputs on, I discovered was very flawed. It was based on only people under sixty five years of age. And there's a study by Dr. Yanasi that showed in the United States that about three quarters of the spending on advanced liver disease is for people over sixty five. So that you know, excluded the vast portion of the population. That was compounded by the fact they only considered people who had commercial private insurance, and that excluded anybody on Medicaid. So they really based their numbers on a very narrow slice of the population. I didn't mention this in my talk, but the thing that jumped out at me it was almost like you know using a biopsy to evaluate the liver. and you were just taking a narrow slice of data. I also thought they got wrong the cost of a transplant. You know, when this was mentioned in the questions that, that followed my presentation, you know, the guy said, "Well, maybe it was wrong, but it really doesn't make a difference." Well, that the doesn't speak well to the economic model if you can get something wrong by a factor of two and it has no impact on your answer so my comments as a retired cpa were more on the economic side louise
4: campbell can i ask a dumb question here
1: if you don't know the cost of the drug is
4: it a pointless exercise anyway because neither company have said what the cost of their medication is going to be and it was based on old costings is that
1: my understanding that's what they did they kind of assumed the cost that may or may not have any bearing in reality so, so i agree what's the point so so it was a pointless economic evaluation in the first
0: place. You can certainly say that. Yeah, I, I guess in theory, you could argue that it gives people a clue as to how to evaluate whatever prices they're thinking of charging against the model that will be used to evaluate it. I don't think that's what anybody had in mind.
2: But what do they do for other drugs that are soon to be approved? Do they also, I think they generally do the pharmacoeconomic estimates. Yeah, but
0: because there are no drugs approved in this disease and because OCA is approved for uh, PVC at, what, $75,000 a year, whatever the number is, more than that now. It becomes very hard to figure out where to plant the flag. So I, I think it, in that regard, they had a unique challenge. Now, why do why do this analysis before you know the prices? That's an interesting question. And Louise, there, the answer is if, you, if you're trying to put your thumb on the scale and tip people in favor of don't charge more than this, and by the way, if charge as little as you can, maybe that makes sense. But when you do that with so many flawed assumptions, I don't know who carries those assumptions forward. You know, back at Tony's point, if you, if you do it right, well, let's try it this way. If missing on the cost of transplant by a factor of two doesn't matter in this analysis, is there a drug price at which which it would matter because it wouldn't matter at any drug price. Then you get to a pointless exercise badly done. What's the old Woody Allen line about bad food in small portions? Pointless analysis done badly. But if they're trying to put their thumb on the scale of what are people going to charge? What a magical charge more specifically, I think, because I've said this on this podcast before. I think the pricing issues around OCA are really very challenging for them.
4: I think it's interesting. It takes me back. If we look at figures in the uk for example if you look at the f2 and above fibrosis and the cost that's worked out here that cost per year i think was around about two and a half million but not looking for the other the numbers in the f1s and below the cost to society was 19 million so we're looking to treat the ones who actually cost healthcare the least because we're not looking for the ones who cost healthcare the most which are the ones with the mild disease and I think it was Wayne that mentions a lot about the different levels of fibrosis having but greater impact than diabetes than that. that to me brings us back to what we're looking at my figures it wasn't millions it was billions so it was about two and a half billion in the higher group and 19 billion in the group that we're not looking for for healthcare costs that were attributed so that for me sways the economic argument of who we should be putting these medications in for and where we should be helping so the lower end to stop progression on a non-progressive disease according to Isa.
1: and now back to roger
0: we hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page from which you downloaded this conversation or send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. Next week's topic's a bit up in the air, but all our options are superb. I'm sure you'll enjoy the episode. So until then, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.